Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's Word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn His truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Well, like last week, we do not have a focal passage of Scripture. We are doing the final uh, recap of the book of John. Uh, so we will be looking at a number of different things. Um, knew about this last week, but was not allowed to tell because grandparents had not been told and other things. So it was hard not to share it last week. But, you know, God is not a God of coincidences. He is in control of all things. You know, dealing with just a recap of John... You know, probably was not a, a strong need to have a responsive reading because, you know, it's not something that really goes along with our scripture passage. But I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the last part of it says, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Folks, we saw a, a little uh, snippet of a ultrasound. We know that God's already at work doing exactly that. Isn't it amazing? Well, last week we began with our summary of the book of John. Now, I shared uh, the reason why John wrote this book. He wrote it to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. That's really the main focus that John uh, did. I shared that uh, the other Gospels mainly kind of did a, a historical uh, account of Jesus from his birth to his death. Yeah, definitely they did share about you know his, his power and his authority. But John, realizing much later in the years that there were many uh, false teachings, that Jesus was not truly God, that he was just a man who maybe the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism and left him at the crucifixion, but just a man. And so John really focused on the, the fact that Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. And he began that with verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And throughout his, his gospel, he points to that. We looked at a number of foundational passages about what John shares with us. We also looked at the seven I am statements, each one showing very specifically that Jesus was saying, I am God. I am equal with God. I am Son of God. I am God. And so we looked at those. Today we're going to look at the seven signs that are found in the book of John. Now, John, the, all the Gospels share many of the miracles that Jesus performed. But John, about 90% of what John writes is not found in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as a matter of fact, only one of the uh, miracles that John shares is found in the other uh, Gospels. So we're going to look at the seven different signs, or what we typically call miracles. John calls them signs, and they point to a reason. Why does John share these? Well, he's saying that this is a sign of something. Now, in the Old Testament specifically, God allowed many of his prophets to do miraculous signs. Why did they do such things? Why did Elijah and Elijah be able to do some of the miracles that they did? Well, here's the primary reason. He allowed them, gave them the power to do that so that those who were listening to them would know that they were speaking on the authority of Almighty God. So this was the way that God was saying, I want to show them my power through you so that when you speak, they will know it is my words coming from you. Basically, the same thing is happening in the book of John. 
John is using the signs or the miracles that Jesus did to prove that he is the Son of God, that he has the power of God, that he is doing the will of God. And so now we're going to look at these seven signs. The first one is found in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the turning of the water into wine. Now, a lot of people say, why was that such a needed sign? Well, it is very much at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is at a wedding in Canaan, and the unheard of happens. The host runs out of wine. Now, typically a marriage feast lasted about a week. So to run out of the wine, we're not sure what day of the week it may have been, how far into it it was. But Jesus' mother says, do something. Help this, help this family. Don't let them be so humiliated. And they have a few little words as to who's in control. But then Jesus orders the servants to take six large water jugs, basically huge vats, and fill them with water. Then he tells one of them to take a sample out of it, take it to the head waiter, and let him sample it, taste it. And the head waiter basically says, this wine is better than what we have already had. So Jesus performed this miracle. Why did he perform it? Well, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, if you're going to have a bunch of men following you around all over Galilee, and they don't really understand why you're there or who you are, you need to fix that. Now, they were following him out of obedience. They were curious. They were hearing his teachings. They liked what they heard. They heard what Jesus was saying about himself. But how much of that was really clicking with them? How much did they really believe? Well, this says that he manifested his glory. He made known his glory, the glory as of the Father, full of grace and truth. He made his glory known, and they, his disciples, believed in him. That's why he did this miracle, so that his own followers would truly believe him, in him. So we see the significance, and the miraculous sign was for people to believe. Then we go to the second miracle found in uh, chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. It is the healing of the official son. There's a man of authority. He's an official. He is from a distant area, and his son is sickened to death. He has a tremendous fever, and they know that he's about to die. So the official travels to where he knows that Jesus is teaching and preaching, and he pleads with him, Lord, will you please come and heal my son? Well, Jesus chooses not to go, but he simply says, Go, your son lives. The man, by faith, didn't argue with Jesus, didn't say, But you have to come. He just simply turned and left. And on the way, he sees his servants coming towards him. Now, what would you think if you were this official? They're coming to tell me that my son has died. But instead, when they meet, they say, your son lives. The fever is broke, he is fine. And so the official asks, when did this happen? And when they explained to him the time and the date that it happened, he said, that's exactly when the Lord says, go, your son lives. 
What's the significance of this? Jesus has the power over space. He is not limited by his presence. Jesus does not have to be with you physically in order to do a great and mighty work. Isn't that a good deal? Do you know that Jesus physically is not here? He is spiritually, but Jesus was able to do that type of work even when he was in his physical, earthly body doing his earthly ministry. He was able to do his power from afar. Then we look at the third sign or miracle. The healing of the lame man at Bethesda pool is found in John chapter 5 verses 1 through 17. The lame man was at Bethesda's pool and he believed like many that an angel would come occasionally and stir the waters and the first person who was to get into the waters when it was stirred would be healed of whatever affliction that they had. So here's the problem. He's lame. He cannot get himself into the pool whenever the water stirred. And he didn't have anybody willing to help him to get into the pool. Jesus comes along and sees him. And he has compassion. He has mercy on this man. And he simply looks at the man and says, Take up your pallet and walk. And the man took up his pallet and walked. And we see such joy in him. But the religious leaders didn't like what they saw. Why not? Why wouldn't you rejoice along with this man that he was healed from his affliction? That he could not walk and now he is walking and leaping and praising the Lord. Why wouldn't you rejoice with him? Well, this man did it on the Sabbath. You can't do anything good on the Sabbath. You can't do healing. That's an act of work. That is illegal. And so they were frustrated. They did not know what to do. But this shows that Jesus, number one, had the power to heal again. And he had mercy on others and most importantly, he was Lord of the Sabbath. There was nothing about Jesus that the Sabbath excluded. He was the Sabbath. He was God. So now we look at the fourth sign or miracle. Feeding the multitude, found in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. This is the only one found in all four Gospels. Now Jesus had a following. He had gone out into a mountainous area and the people were following him. He sat up on a hillside preaching and teaching to the people and he realized we're a long ways from a town and there's basically nothing here for the people to feed themselves with. If we sent them away, the fear is that they would be too weak to get to where they needed to get supplies, to get food and water. And so, if you remember the story, he said, you know, he asked, how much money do we have in the treasury? And the guy said, not enough. Nowhere close for anybody to have anything sustenance to, to eat. And then one of his disciples brings this little boy up. Can't, can't you just picture this? The little boy's got five little biscuits, little, little loaves of bread, and two sardines, small fish. And Jesus said, that's enough. That's enough. And he took them and broke them and blessed them and fed well over 5,000 people. It says there are 5,000 men, along with their wives, along with their children, probably at least double that. And at the end, they collected a baskets 
to, to fill up the leftovers, and they had 12 basketfuls left. Now, number one, Jesus did this out of compassion. He knew that the people were in need, physically, of sustenance so that they could return. And so he saw their need. But John chapter 6, verse 14 tells us, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now you've got to go back into the Old Testament a little bit to find out what are they talking about. God promised through one of the prophets, the prophet, not just a prophet, but the prophet, capital P, that this man of God would come in the future to do God's will, that he would be God's person for salvation. And so they believe that he is truly the prophet that was foretold of, that was promised to come into the world. So again, belief in what God was doing. Now we look at the fifth sign or miracle. Jesus walks on water. Well, you just go to the next verse, chapter 6, verses 15 through 21. Immediately after Jesus has fed the multitudes, he sends his disciples away. He puts them into a boat, sets them sail to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, I'll meet you there later. Well, they get about halfway across the sea and a storm rises and they can't make any headway. They're stuck. And all of a sudden they look and they see somebody walking across the Sea of Galilee in the storm towards them. Now, different, there is at least one other passage that shares this particular miracle or sign. Jesus acted as if he would go past them and they hollered out and they, they're afraid. Is this a ghost? Is this some kind of spirit? But Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And we look and we see, what does this mean? Well, the disciples are already believers, but here shows the power of protection. They're in the midst of a storm. They're stuck in the middle of the sea. Uh, they don't know what to do. And Jesus protects them. But he also shows his power over nature. If you remember another passage very similar to this, it says that he was in the stern of a boat asleep. And a great storm came, and the boat was about to capsize. It's filling with water, and the disciples said, Lord, are you going to let us die? And he just simply said, Peace, be still, and the seas calmed. Well, this one is a little bit different. When Jesus got in the boat, immediately they were on shore at their destination. Now, one second, they're in the middle of the sea. The next second, they're on shore. How in the world does that happen? Well, not by human means, obviously. This proves that Jesus not only uh, has the power of protection and power over nature, but he also has power over space and time. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do. We know that according to the responsive reading, you know when I sit, and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with me in all ways. Before a word on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. Do you think God doesn't know what's going on in my life and your life right this second? Do you think that he does not know what's going to happen tomorrow and next month and next year? He is in control. He knows everything. There is no time limit on what God is in control of. Obviously, Jesus 
could cause time, a time warp or whatever you want to call it, where immediately they went from the middle of the Sea of Galilee to the shore where they were supposed to go. Amazing, isn't it? Do you think that that may have strengthened the faith of the disciples that were following him? Well, let's look at the sixth sign or miracle. Jesus gives sight to a blind man. There's a man who was born blind. That's the important part. He did not just lose his sight. He did not just have limited sight. He was born blind. And the question always was, if a person was born with a defect, there must have been some kind of sin involved because people believe that any kind of physical defect or, or disease was caused by sin. And so the question was, did this man sin before he was born? Or did his parents sin and cause him to be born blind? And Jesus simply said, neither. This was so that the work of God may be revealed. And he heals the man of his blindness. Now, there again, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't like what Jesus did. Number one, how can this man do something that overcomes somebody else's sin so that he could become sighted instead of blind? And, dadgummit, he did it on the Sabbath again. We can't let this keep happening. He is ruining our Sabbath. He is bucking the laws that we have set in stone. He did it on the Sabbath. And so they go around and they try to discredit this blind man who now sees. They, they go to parents, they go to all different things, and they finally corner this man and say, you've got to reject what this man did. He's a sinner because he did this on the Sabbath. Now, John chapter 9, verse 25 says, And he, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Wow. We look and we see that the significance of this sign follows in chapter 9, verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Now, it sounds like a little bit of a twist on words, but what Jesus is saying is that those who physically cannot see, I can heal and give them physical sight. But he's also saying that those who cannot see spiritually, I can give spiritual sight. But those who think that they can see spiritually, like these religious leaders, I'll make them blind because they reject the truth that's standing right before them. Now we look at the seventh sign or miracle. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, found in chapter 11, verses 17 through 45. Lazarus, Mary and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were very close friends of Jesus. They, Mary and Martha, I know, had ministered alongside of Jesus, ministered to him and his disciples on multiple occasions. They send a message to Jesus, who is not close by, that Lazarus is about to die, that he's sick unto death. Jesus chooses not to immediately go. He already knows that Lazarus probably is already dead by the time the messenger gets there. But he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, the Jews had this belief somehow or another that the spirit hung around the body for about three days and maybe could be resuscitated and the spirit would still be in the body. But after four days, there's no way that anything good could happen. 
But Jesus comes and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth out of that tomb. But before that, Martha came to him and was dealing with the facts. Now, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. That's one of the I am statements from last week. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Then he called Lazarus from the tomb. The important part is, I am the resurrection and the life. All we know right this minute is what we can experience physically, right? We don't know what the afterlife is going to be like. We don't know what resurrection is going to be like. We know that Jesus was physically resurrected from the grave. He came forth in a perfected body that could go through walls, and then he ascended to be with the Father in heaven. We know those things. But the Bible tells us that we will experience the resurrection. That after this body dies and maybe or maybe not decays, that there will be a time when Jesus will call forth his people and we will be resurrected. We will receive a resurrected body. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? But here's the main thing we need to understand. When we receive that, we will be with him for all of eternity. That's the most important thing. That will be the resurrection and the eternal life with him. And so Jesus, even in this sign, is already pointing to the future. I am not only this physical resurrection of raising Lazarus from the dead, but I am the resurrection. I am the one that will bring life eternal. So we look and we see he did this sign again so that many would believe. See, there were many people that had come out of the village and gone to Mary and Martha to console them at the death of Lazarus. And when they saw this miraculous sign, they too believed. So not only do we see Jesus' power over physical death, but also spiritual death, and he is our hope for the resurrection. Well, that takes care of the seven signs or miracles of Jesus found in, in John. Now I want to deal with just coming to terms with our calling. Now that we completed this review, now that we completed almost a two-year study of the book of John, what will we do with these messages? What do they mean to us? God's given us a message for a reason. In the 21st chapter, Jesus met his disciples after his resurrection. If you remember, they'd gone back to their old lifestyle, just fishing for fish instead of fishing for men. And Jesus reminds them of his calling to be disciples, to be fishers of men. Remember Peter had denied Jesus three times somewhere along the way. Jesus had already met with Peter and they had dealt with the forgiveness, the confession and forgiveness. And then at this point Jesus deals with Peter's unfaithfulness and he restores his call to ministry. From this chapter we need to deal with a few main issues that affect you and I. First of all, did you know that we have limitations? We can't do everything especially in our own strength and power. Unfortunately, the large majority of Christians try to live life in their own strength and power. They say, well, I can do this, I can do this. I've got these talents, I've got these abilities. 
But instead, we need to say, I can do nothing without God working in me and through me. That's why the Bible tells us in so many different places that God has given us spiritual gifts to accomplish His good and acceptable and perfect will. It is not through us, it's through Him working in us, through us, through His Spirit, that we can accomplish anything. If you remember last week, we dealt with the uh, fact that Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him shall produce much fruit, for without me you can do nothing, absolutely nothing. So we're limited in what we can do, but we are unlimited in what God can do in us and through us. And that is evident so much in the book of John. Then we look at the second thing. We must set priorities. We just saw in chapter 21 that after over three years, these disciples who've been following Jesus went back to their old lifestyle. And we discussed that a few weeks back. Why did they do that? Well, they no longer had Jesus providing for their needs. They were questioning, well, those who were coming alongside Jesus to provide his ministry needs, will they come alongside of us and provide for ours? We've got to make a living. We've got to earn a living so that we can have food, clothing, whatever we need to sustain our ministry. So they went back to fishing because that's what they did before they met Jesus. So we look and we say, you know what? We have to work for a living too, don't we? We have to do something to earn the food, money to purchase the food and the clothing, whatever it is that we need to sustain us in life. Well, what's our priority though? Do we focus so much on the physical aspect of meeting our own needs that we fail to remember the calling of God on our lives? That's what was going on when Jesus was on the shore with these disciples. They were so focused on the physical needs that they had failed to prioritize God's calling, Jesus' calling upon their lives. The first time that Jesus had met them in a fishing boat, they had another great catch, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now he's reminding them of that calling. I think you and I both need to be reminded that we are all disciples of Christ and that he has called us to make disciples, to be fishers of men, to be used by him to share the love of Christ with those around us in this world around us because this world is dying and going to hell unless they hear about Christ. And so he's reminding us we need to prioritize our days, our time, our energies. How do we do that? Well, simply we just need to bring honor and glory to God in everything that we do. When you work, you do not work for your boss or whoever it is that oversees you. You work as unto God. And you make everything that you do something that honors him. When you live life, when you're out and about, you share God's love with those who are around you. You make a positive, godly influence on all people. Peter had utterly failed Jesus. Jesus restored Peter by saying, Now feed my sheep, tend to my lambs. And he kept focusing on the priority. What was Peter's priority? To return to the original calling that Jesus had called him to be a fisher of men instead of fishers of fish. And so 
Jesus restored his ministry. I think there's times he needs to restore ours. I think that, first of all, we need to do like Peter did, even though it's not recorded in the scriptures, and I know it happened, that we too need to confess our sinfulness, our failures, and we need to allow Jesus, our Lord, to forgive us of our sins. And we need to expect him to restore our ministry, because that's his greatest desire, is to restore us into where he wants us to be in our ministry in life. So, beautiful passage I've quoted hundreds of times, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. That makes us pure and holy to be in God's presence so that we can be of use to him once again. Failure is inevitable, but what do we do after we fail? Peter was a lost cause. There's no hope for him, right? Until Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Is he asking you the same thing? Steve, do you love me? Are you ready to get back to what I've called you to do, to minister in my name, in my power? Well, that leads us to some final questions. First one, what will we do with the truths that are found in this book of John? We look, and every time that you read, study, meditate on the Word of God, do you know what happens? You become responsible for what you have heard, for what you've read, for what you've studied. It is now your responsibility to apply it to your life, to live it out. After two years of studying the book of John, we're responsible for it now. Even if you didn't make it every Sunday, you should have found, found a way to get either go online to a podcast and listen to it. I, I send it out to everybody who has an email address so that you can read it. There's a way for you to get it, but simply opening up the Word of God and reading it, studying it, meditating on it, it's your responsibility. Now we're responsible for what we have seen and heard and listened to and read. Well, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to put this into practice? Well, throughout this, we have learned about abiding, about ministering, about being righteous, about surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. So now we need to say, Lord, transform my life into what you want it to be so that I can live out these truths that you have taught me. Well, the second question is, what is our part in God's redemptive plan for the world? I struggle with this, and I know you do. How can I be the witness that God wants me to be? I'm not a Billy Graham or Franklin Graham or Will Graham or any of these other wonderful evangelists that have this gift to go out into the multitudes and to proclaim the Word of God. That's a special calling upon their lives. God's called me right here for right now for this purpose. God's placed me here for this purpose. Do you know what? God's placed you where you are in your life for a purpose. There are people around you that he wants you to impact with his gospel, with his message of salvation, with his love that he has already shared with you. He wants you to reflect it with to, to those around you that need it most. You're not where you are in life as a coincidence. God has you there for a reason. You need to ask yourself, why am I here? What does God have in store for me? What am I supposed to be doing for God where I am? 
Jesus had his apostles in a specific place. After he left and ascended to heaven, each one of them found a specific place where God wanted them to go and to minister. And it was different places. Each one was led in a different direction. But they faithfully fulfilled God's calling. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Am I fulfilling God's calling in my life? Am I being used where I am? Because God has me right here, right now, for a purpose. Well, the third question is, how do we deal with hardships? Hardships, persecution, suffering, rejection, whatever words you want to use. The, the truth is, the world has always hated Jesus. And the world has always hated his followers. So if you feel hated by the world, you're in good company. Because the world has rejected Jesus and they will reject us. They will try to ridicule us. They will try to defame us. They will try to do anything to shut us up. They will do anything to harm our reputation. They will persecute us, cause any amount of suffering that they want to. So expect it. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 really gives us the answer. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I shared with, with you this passage not long ago. I said, the greatest way to face persecution is just to go ahead and die. Just go ahead and die. Die to self, die to this physical body, and live in Christ. That's what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. I am no longer alive. It is no longer me who lives. It is Christ living in me. If we die to self, then God, through His power, through His Spirit, can now live in us and through us to do His good and simple, perfect will. So, how much are we willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Whatever it is that we may face, I can promise you this. God will give us the, enable us to handle whatever we face. He will be the strength. He'll be the guiding force. He will give us the words to say. He will be our faith. Could we die because of our faith? Could. It's possible. Millions of people have. There have been more martyred after Jesus than long before. Even in the first century, millions were martyred. But in today's time, far more than that have been. So yes, you could die for the faith. Should we worry about that? No. Throughout history, those who have been called to be martyrs, to die for the faith, have done so with peace, with strength, with joy in their hearts, knowing that they had fulfilled whatever it was that God had put them here for. So here's just some final remarks. To prepare to face persecution and suffering, we must draw nearer to the Lord every day. We must surrender anew every day. We must die to self every day. 
when Jesus is truly Lord of our lives, nothing else should ever matter. There should not be any worries, any concerns about anything that's going on in life. We should just simply trust Him by faith. The question is, are we being found faithful? John is a powerful, powerful book. Not to be taken lightly. I shared with you the other day, if anybody ever asked you, where should I start reading the book, the Bible? Point them to John. Number one, it point, it point blank says, Jesus is God. There's no doubt about it. Shows the power of Jesus, shows his ministry, shows the purpose of his calling. And shows that without him, we can do nothing. Are we being found faithful to be used right where we are for his purpose? Let's bow together. Dear Lord, it's you who holds us responsible for all that we've heard, for all that we've read, studied, and meditated on. Lord, that's a great responsibility. Lord, it's nothing that we can possibly do in our own strength and power to do anything with it. But Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who gives us wisdom, guidance, understanding, and knowledge of what we've studied. Not only that, but he also implants it into our hearts and minds, and he enables us to use what we have learned in your power, in your strength, through your spirit guidance, to be used by you to do your perfect will. Lord, you placed us wherever we are in life for a purpose. But we need to ask ourselves, are we fulfilling that purpose? Are we being faithful to your calling upon us to bring honor and glory to you so that we can share your love with the lost world around us? Lord, may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.